Hi, Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Today, coming to you with the pleasure of speaking with Rainey Johnson, who is a medical doctor undertaking cardiology fellowship at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And I reached out to Rainey for an opportunity to talk about a paper that he has coming out with his co-authors in the September 2023 issue of Medical Education entitled A Scoping Review of Self-Monitoring in Graduate Medical Education. Rainey, thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time and know that this is likely a very busy time in your life as you're undertaking this fellowship. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, The paper is actually part of a special issue where we've brought together a number of reviews uses a scope and review of self-monitoring, as I already implied in the title. So before we get into you know, why it's your scoping reviews, maybe I can just ask you to tell our listeners why it mattered. What was it about self-monitoring that intrigued you enough to undertake this effort? Yeah, so I guess I'll answer that in a couple parts. One, in some ways, it's really cool to be having this conversation with you because your work really influenced our work and thinking in particular about you know, self-monitoring, we selected a definition for self-monitoring to operate our scoping review from your paper from 2009, I'll Never Play American Football and Other Fallacies of Self-Assessment. Basically, the definition we operationalized is that self-monitoring is an in-the-moment self-awareness. And we felt like there was some evidence in the undergraduate medical education literature that self-monitoring was a useful tool, and yet there really wasn't clearly anything in graduate medical education. We didn't know if we would find five articles or as we you know, found you know, 70 plus articles that would fit this. And so that's part of the reason we chose a scoping review as well is because we really had no idea what was out there. And self-monitoring, even though it has been defined in the literature, there hasn't been consistency in terms of how it's been used or how other words have been used within the literature. So there's a lot of heterogeneity, which I think because of that landscape in the literature, a scoping review is really the ideal review type for this paper. And then why were we interested in it? I think self-monitoring is something that feels really important, even though we're still trying to learn about why it could be important. So sort of my pie in the sky perspective would be that the only person that is with a clinician 100% of the time is the clinician themselves. And so being able to recognize one's own limitations and comfort, uncertainty, which is all part of self-monitoring, seems like something that is essential for patient care, patient outcomes, patient safety. And we know that medical errors and diagnostic reasoning continue to be a huge source of patient safety events, patient injury events, and self-monitoring seems like it could be a tool to help combat some of that. And just again, for those who are new to the term, can you give an example or two from your own clinical experience that represents what you were thinking of self-monitoring as being when you came into the project? Yeah, for sure. I think it's easiest to think about self-monitoring and explain it from like a procedural standpoint. So for example, if you are placing a arterial line, just like a catheter into the radial artery in the wrist, you're putting it in and maybe you don't get blood coming back. You're thinking to yourself, oh, like 
Do I need to go more shallow, go more deep, go more to the left side or the right side? That process of observing your actions, where am I? Judging that, hey, I haven't gotten the end product I want, so I need to do something. And then making a change, like all of that is self-monitoring. You alluded to sort of needing to scope the literature broadly because you weren't sure what you were going to find or where it would be located. How did you go about setting the parameters to guide your search so that you would capture the variety of things that might resemble what you just described, keeping in mind that different people use different terms for any number of things? Totally. I mean, it's almost embarrassing how long it took us to develop the (laughs) search strategy. And, you know, some of that is like, delay in communication back and forth. But for the most part, it was because it was hard to decide what terms to include. Because with self-monitoring alone, the search results were pretty minimal. And we had some example papers that were like, they're not using self-monitoring here, but this is what we're talking about. This is it. So this paper needs to be included. And over the course of about four months, we just went through different search strategies, would scan through, find some of the papers we felt like should definitely be included. And then with a set of about probably 15 to 20 papers that we really felt like, you know, these represent the type of paper that should have a full text review. We then ended up with a search strategy that included all of those papers. So a little trial and error methodology there. Yeah. Well, and the only people who should have any sense of it seeming embarrassing would be those who've never tried it before. Because oh my gosh, what, right? what you're describing <laughs> is something that, that is effortful. And it's good to hear that you were trying to be guided by the spirit of the concept rather than getting locked into particular phrasing. But that yields a lot of debate. Once you got to this space, I'm just curious as to how you're analysis and any effort at consensus building helped you to refine your understanding of the concept? I think in many ways, we did not anticipate this. And actually, I think it was partly in conversation with you and your reviewer team that really helped us to recognize that it was really a strength that it was challenging to operationalize self-monitoring. And I think that was like a strength of the outcome of our paper, if you will. The process we took with kind of a very broad search to try to capture maybe not as much as possible, but, you know, the majority of what was possible really meant that there was a ton of manual searching and manual decision making around inclusion, exclusion, going from over 5,000 papers to, you know, just over 70 in terms of what is included is more than your typical jump for a review, even a scoping review. And so I think we tried to minimize the risk of missing things by screening references in the articles that we ended up including and stuff like that. But I think that process, the inclusion process was really focused around like, is this self-monitoring or not? Like that was the most important part of the inclusion process. And deciding whether something is self-monitoring turned out to be much more challenging than the definition of, is this in-the-moment self-awareness? What does in-the-moment mean? And that helped us to come to a consensus about what we were going to include as self-monitoring. And basically, we ended up operationalizing self-monitoring as a time-dependent and context-dependent process. So time-dependent, it happens at the same time or at the same time as like a relived performance of the task, whatever that task is, and context-dependent, like we're talking about a specific task, 
that happened on a specific patient or with a specific type of test or something like that. It's not an aggregate or summary of multiple tasks that were done that had similar characteristics, if that makes sense. And that helped us to differentiate it from self-assessment. But I think that's a continuum. And I think that we brought our own biases of being clinicians and thinking about what is realistic to really recall and detail, which I think is at the crux of self-monitoring. And we use that to try to help make decisions about what to include and not to include. I was going to ask bluntly whether or not all that effort was worth it <laughs> by asking what you're most excited about. You just named the time and context dependence, and that seems quite central. Again, thinking back to some of the examples that you have used already, can you put a bit of more meat on those bones for our listeners? What is it that you now think about is going on in those moments when people are engaging in what you're calling self-monitoring that you may not have fully appreciated before you undertook all this effort? Yeah, I think in terms of what is going on with people when they're engaged with self-monitoring, I think for the most part, people probably don't even recognize that they're engaging in self-monitoring because to some extent, it's a natural part of doing a procedure or interpreting a study or, you know, thinking about a diagnosis that you're trying to make in a patient. And yet, I think from our collation and summarizing of the literature that we included, I think that there's probably some benefit to naming it and recognizing it and maybe even doing more of it and maybe doing more of it in a more structured way that may make it more beneficial as opposed to something that is kind of this ad hoc natural process. I don't know if that totally answers your question, but... Yeah, it actually does. And it leads me to questions about implications. Like acknowledge that I'm probably pushing into speculative mode now rather than speaking to to results. (laughs) But what benefits do you think can be achieved by making people more cognizant of that activity that they're often implicitly engaging in as you described it? Yeah. I mean, I think the goal is that self-monitoring helps to improve patient outcomes, right? And I think, you know, there's... (laughs) very limited evidence that that's the case. There's one study that was by Eric Holmbo from 2005, where they basically divided postgraduate year trainees and year three. And the year two trainees, they got training in self-audit process of their own outpatient charts with a particular focus on management of patients with diabetes. And that's the only study that we found that had like actual clear patient outcomes. So in that study, the group that participated in this self-auditing process, which we considered an example of a relived task performance, they went back through their notes in detail and thought about what they would have changed in that encounter as part of the self-monitoring process. Their patients had improved hemoglobin A1C levels, which is a generic marker for diabetes, had improved cholesterol levels, and they had more up-to-date and comprehensive screening for the complications of diabetes, namely kidney problems, neuropathy problems, and eye vision problems. So more of that is the goal. And again, I think patient outcomes and patient safety are kind of almost one and the same, if you will. That offers great promise if we can better understand what's happening and how to push it. Are you at a stage already where you've noted yourself doing anything differently in practice or in your teaching as it pertains to self-monitoring in the workplace? I think the 
one thing that I have noticed doing more of is when things are hard, you know, we saw some signal that when tasks are more challenging and there's more distractions, that people are worse at self-monitoring, which kind of makes sense. But I think those are probably the most important times to self-monitor. And so trying to recognize those times and use those as moments. It's been described in the literature in a paper by Moulton before as taking time to slow down. So that's something that I've tried to incorporate into my own clinical practice of when things are getting more challenging and it feels harder, take a deep breath and pause to do some self-monitoring in a really conscious way. Right. And that sounds like good advice for us to wrap up on as listeners hopefully start to use this paper to think about how their own practice or training might continue to evolve. I'll remind people who are listening that the paper we've been discussing is a scoping review of self-monitoring in graduate medical education. Rainy Johnson is the voice you've been listening to other than mine. And I recommend the paper to you, not just those who are interested in self-monitoring, but as I alluded to at the top, September's issue is a special issue dedicated to medical education in review, as we tend to label it in our journal. And this is a good example of a scoping review and one of the many review methodologies that are important to our field and encourage people to read it for some guidance on methodological strategy as well. So with that, Rainy, again, thank you so much for walking us through your views on the paper. We look forward to seeing what comes next, and I hope that it's an ongoing, productive, and fun area for exploration for you. I hope so, too. Thank you very much. <laughs>